0: We're going to be going through Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to 23. Now, these verses are, I guarantee it, the hardest verses in the whole book to interpret. They might be some of the hardest verses in the entire Bible outside of Revelation and some passages in Daniel and some in Ezekiel to interpret. This is uh, apocalyptic language. It's prophecy. And so the scholarship on Mark 13 is wildly vast. It is broad in its interpretation. And so nothing I'm going to say to you tonight am I being dogmatic about. What do I mean by that? What I'm going to say to you, uh, great, fantastic Bible scholars disagree with me. And that's okay. This is not of primary importance. That doesn't mean it's not important. Okay, it's not core to your salvation that you get this exactly right. This is not core necessarily to your growth as a Christian that you get this exactly right. However, we at Eternal City Church are committed to going through books of the Bible verse by verse by verse without skipping any, even if the texts are hard and wildly variant on their, on their interpretations. And so we're gonna go through the first 23 verses of Mark Thirteen. My view, right up front, I believe this all took first took place in the first century. Okay, so my cards are on the table right away. I believe that all that Jesus is prophesying happened within the first century. Okay, now that's not to say there's not future implications to the prophecies that Jesus is making here. However, I believe that in its uh, whole verses 1 to 23 take place within the first century. So there's your introduction. Let's pray and let's jump right in because we got a lot to do and not a lot of time. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, we thank you for not leaving us in the dark as to who you are, as to the good news of our salvation and as to what you expect from us. Father, we thank you that your word is true in all of its words, its individual words, its sentences, its phrases, its books, its letters. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us light tonight. Open up your word to us. Unlock it for us that we might see more clearly. Father, I pray for attention as these verses are hard, I pray that you would give all of us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, I pray that you would reveal your glory and your sovereignty and your power through your word tonight. Father, we thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing between bone and marrow, soul and spirit, able to judge the thoughts and intents of our heart. We are laid bare and open and naked before you and before your word. Father, those who fear you tremble at your word. And I pray that all this would be true of us tonight. Father, help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. All right, let's get into it. So remember last week. Remember last week. Eddie preached so well for us, and he reminded us about The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law testing Jesus on what is the greatest commandment. And Jesus said it is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor As yourself. And Jesus, after answering all his questioners, he begins to ask questions that no one can answer. And he begins to reveal the hearts of the questioners, specifically the scribes. Keep that in your mind because it is essential for chapter 13. So I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2. And then as we progress through to chapter 3, we will read it as we go along. The English Standard Version reads, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another, that will not be thrown down. Jesus here is coming out of the temple after having bad interactions in the temple. You remember he came in triumphantly on a donkey, on a colt. He Left the temple, he cursed the fig tree, symbolizing the temple and the and the Jewish religion and the sacrificial system and the leaders of the religion at the time. He curses the fig tree because there was no fruit. You remember that the the leaders, the chief priests, and those selling in the temple were keeping the Gentiles from being able to worship. And Jesus said, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, all ethnicities and yet you've made it a den of thieves, a den of robbers. And so he curses the fig tree symbolizing the temple and its worship and the leadership of the temple in this day. Well, the temple was certainly magnificent. And you can see here, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. Let's first talk about this temple, okay? This temple was built by Herod the Great, and it was in process of being built as Jesus was leaving the temple here in these first two verses of Mark 13. It was begun to be remodeled between 19 and 20 BC, so before Christ, it was being remodeled. And now, this is around 30 to 31, 32 AD. So, for 50 years, this has been being remodeled and worked on. Now, here is what this temple looked like. This is how big it was. That little block on the left is the size of an American football field, and that's the size of the temple and its courts. This temple was massive, massive. Here is a a, a depiction of it. So you see in the middle there, the temple, and then you see the inner courts, and then you see the outer courts or the Gentiles' courtyard right here. This is where Jesus was flipping the tables of the money changers and releasing the animals and making a whip and whipping people and driving people out. This is Solomon's portico where the first church met and went through the apostles' teaching in Acts 4 and 5. And this is the temple that Jesus is now leaving, and he's leaving through the east gate. He's leaving through the east gate. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. This disciple, whoever this disciple is, is awed. Now, here's what you need to know. Some of the temple's foundational stones, just foundational stones were 37 feet long, 12 feet high. That's probably as high as the ceiling or higher. And 18 feet wide, 37 by 12 by 18. These are just foundational stones. These aren't the marble that made up the temple. This is not the gold that overlaid the, the marble to, to give it beauty. There's one reference that the outer part of the temple was so covered with gold that when the sun rose, it reflected uh, off the gold and it blinded those, so you couldn't even look at the temple. That's how magnificent this temple was. Herod spared no expense. He he was called Herod the Builder because he built great and magnificent magnificent structures and cities. And the temple was his, if you will, big building project, and it was still under construction. Now, let's look at what happened just prior to Jesus prophesying that there will not be one stone left upon another. What happened? Well, you remember in 12, the chapter before, verses 38a and 40a, it reads this, Jesus said, beware of the scribes who devour widows' houses. Now, Eddie did a good job last week of showing us that the Old Testament over and over and over again said that we need to look after three types of people in particular. The widow, the orphan, the fatherless, and I'll add a fourth, the poor. And so the widow was vulnerable and they didn't have anyone to take care of them. And so the Old Testament uh, Israelites were charged to look after the widow. You be the caretaker of the one who has no one to take care of them. The New Testament, James says, you want true religion? This is it. Look after who? Widows and orphans in their distress. This is true religion, James says. But the scribes were devouring widows' houses. What does that mean? That means taking from them, not giving to them, not supporting them, not caring from them, rather robbing them and taking and stealing, the opposite of what they were supposed to be doing. Then in Mark 12, 41b and 43b to 44, we read this, many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Jesus then says about this situation, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything, everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, Eddie preached this rightly. I agree with his interpretation. Here's another way to look at this. Any religious system that would take a widow's very last bit of money that she would have to live on is not a good system. It is not a good religion that would devour all that a widow has so she has nothing to live on. And so the very next declaration of Jesus is this. Do you see these great buildings of this temple that this widow has just contributed to build, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This whole thing, this whole system is coming down. This is the prophecy of Jesus. And you can imagine, you know, you're, you're looking at this magnificent architecture and no, no doubt it was a work of art, one of the ancient wonders of the world. And yet Jesus is not so concerned with the temple for a lot of reasons one because it was corrupted and god was about to do something new in fact here is god speaking this temple is through and this new temple is where god is doing something this temple is about to be obsolete this new temple me is where god is about to do a brand new work so let's move on we'll get into this more as we go Let's go to verses 3 through 8. Verses 3 through 8. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple... So remember, Jesus went out of the temple through the east gate. The Mount of Olives is on the east, and so he goes down the valley, the Kidron, and he goes up on the Mount of Olives, and it sits high enough above the temple that you can look down and look right into the entrance of the temple. And so the disciples are here, and Jesus is here, and they're looking down upon the temple and all of its activities. And what happens? Peter and James and John and Andrew, the closest four, the first four that Jesus calls to himself as disciples, ask him privately. So they're, they're not with the crowds, they're private, and they say to him, tell us, tell us, when will these things be? When, when is this going to happen that all these stones are, are not going to be left on top of one another? When is this going to happen, Jesus? And what will be the sign When all these things are about to be accomplished, when will it be that all these signs are about to be accomplished? What are these? Anyone know what these are? Signs of what? railroad crossing, right? So when you see these signs and you're driving, at least I do, because I'm, I'm very familiar with trains. As a, as a young heathen, I used to paint on them, paint my name on them, and, and God showed me the futility of that exercise, because while I was painting one, I heard the links started popping, and I hopped off, and the train was like rolled away, and I watched my art and my time and my effort just take off, and thankfully, I was off of the train by that time. <laughs> uh, so when I see these type of signs, I am cautious because I know the amount of tons behind uh, a, a rail freight car engine and what that would do to me and my little Nissan four-cylinder. I would be destroyed. Okay? So when you see these signs, what are you supposed to do? Look for what the signs point to, railroad tracks, and they're, they're describing possible danger. Be alert. You are in danger. Railroad tracks are upon you, but the signs are not as important as what they point to, right? The signs simply point to a greater reality, and so here the disciples are asking, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign Signs point beyond themselves when all these things are about to be accomplished. So here's their question to his prophetic declaration. Not one stone will be left upon another. When and what will be the signs? When's this going to happen, Jesus? And how are we going to know? What signs will show us that this is about to happen? And so here's a great help to us in interpreting this. Jesus is about to answer their question. so simple. Jesus is now, through the rest of these verses up to 23, he's going to answer their question. Now, as I said, there are times where I think the text points beyond the immediate to a future reality, and I'll point those out. But just plainly looking at the text, he's saying, now I'm going to answer the what and the signs, the when and what will be the signs. Verse 5, And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Now, this is a beautiful first thing that he says. He is caring for their souls. Jesus is the chief shepherd, according to 1 Peter 5. That word shepherd uh, is also translated pastor. It's the only word in the Bible uh, that can be translated either shepherd or pastor, for they are interchangeable. To pastor someone is to shepherd them as a shepherd, cares for sheep. And so Jesus, as the chief shepherd, is about to care for his disciples. And beyond the disciples, Peter, James, John, Andrew, remember they're privately having this discussion, Mark is going to write down for us what Peter heard. Remember, Peter is the source material for this gospel of Mark. And so Mark, P- Peter heard this firsthand, first he translates it to Mark, Mark writes it for us to benefit us. And the first thing he does, he says, see that no one leads you astray, meaning sheep are very prone to wander and to be led astray. And so his first declaration here, in answer to their question, is, look, be careful, guys. Make sure that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many. So many will come in my name, and th- those many will lead many astray. Let's stop there. Now, we have Uh, a a great historian to help us here. His name is Josephus. I've quoted him in the past. Uh, He he has antiquities, he has the wars, and he has all kinds of information on what was going on at the time of Jesus and the apostles. Now, I'm going to read two accounts from Josephus here of false messiahs. Now, we know Jesus by the last name Christ, right? Jesus Christ. All right, your first name's Jesus. Last name Christ, how do you spell that, C-H-R-I-S-T? No, Christ is not his last name, it means Messiah, and Messiah means anointed one. It means savior, it means the deliverer of Israel. And so what Jesus is saying is, many are coming in the role, or at least claiming the role of deliverer, of liberator, of anointed Messiah of the one who will lead the Jews away from Roman oppression. Many will come and claim to be, or at least function as, a Messiah. But be careful. Be careful. Many will rise up and claim to be a messianic figure. And they will lead many astray. Now, we have a few of these in Josephus, and then the Bible backs up Josephus. And we'll never let Josephus back up the Bible. It's always the other way around. All my apologetic heads were like, yes and amen. Everyone else was like, not sure what you meant by that, brother. Trust me, the Bible is more authoritative than Josephus. That's what I meant by that. All right, so Josephus says this. This is uh, a quote translated into English. Now, it came to pass while Faddis was procurator of Judea, that means governor, that means Roman official over Judea, that a certain magician whose name was Theodos persuaded a great part of people to take their effects with them and follow him to the river Jordan. For he told them he was a prophet and that he would, by his own command, divide the river and afford them an easy passage over it. And many were deluded by his words. However, Phaddis did not permit them to make any advance of his wild attempt, but sent a troop of horsemen out against them. Who, falling upon them unexpectedly, slew many of them and took many of them alive. They also took Thudius alive and cut off his head and carried it to Jerusalem. This was what befell the Jews in the time of Cuspius Fadius, or Fadus' government. Here's another one. Moreover, there came out of Egypt about this time to Jerusalem one that said he was a prophet and advised the multitude of the common people to go along with him to the Mount of Olives, as it was called, which lay over against the city. And at the distance of five furlongs, he said farther that he would show them from hence how, at his command, the walls of Jerusalem would fall down. And he promised that he would procure them an entrance into the city through those walls when they were fallen down. Now, when Felix, we see Felix in Acts chapter 23 was informed of these things. He's a Roman governor, Felix. He ordered his soldiers to take their weapons and came against them with a great number of horsemen, footmen from Jerusalem, and attacked the Egyptian and all the people that were with him. He also slew 400 of them and took 200 alive. But the Egyptian himself escaped out of the the fight, but did not appear any more. And again, the robbers stirred up the people to make war with the Romans, and he said they ought not obey them at all. And when any persons would not comply with them, they set fire to their villages and plundered them. Okay, now this is speaking of the turmoil after Acts chapter 7 at the stoning of Stephen, and as we get up into the transition of Roman governors into Nero, the Christians are the hated group and the hunted group, such that Nero would literally douse them in a pitch oil type substance, hang them in the air, light them on fire, and they would light his gardens. Christians, thrown into the Colosseums for sport, so that the wild animals can eat them, burned alive for show. And Jesus is here warning, what will be the signs? Well, first of all, there's going to be a lot of zealots, there's going to be a lot of insurrectionists, and they're going to claim to be messianic, and you don't be deceived by them. Many will come, and many will follow after them. These are two examples from Josephus. But here, in Acts chapter 5, we see Gamaliel pointing to them. Look, but before these days, there he is, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, a.k.a. a messiah. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. What's going on in Acts 5? Well, what's going on is uh, the apostles have been brought in for preaching Jesus and for healing a man and proclaiming the resurrection and also blaming the establishment for crucifying Jesus. And so they, they take the apostles in, and they're going to punish them. And they do punish them. They, they beat them. And then Gamaliel, one of the uh, Pharisees who has much, much respect, he actually was Paul's rabbi, if you will, He, he speaks up and he speaks these words. While the apostles are on trial and they're deciding, do we kill them? Do we release them? What do we do? For before these days, Judas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean, you remember him from a few weeks ago? Judas the Galilean, because of the head tax of Rome, uh, stormed the temple. Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, with these apostles, these ones who say that Jesus was the Messiah. I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. Gamaliel is very wise. It will fail. If it's of man, it's going to fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God! Exclamation point. So they took his advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them. They had the authority to do this, 39 lashes, 40 minus 1. They beat them physically, and then charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then you remember their response. They rejoiced for being privileged to suffer for the name of Jesus. This Acts 5 points to what Jesus is about to warn them about in Mark 13. He says, See that no one leads you astray, verse 5. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. Now, don't read over that so fast. The this must take place means this is God's will, and what God wills cannot be thwarted. Now, for some of you, that's troubling because wars, rumors of wars, false messiahs, God's will? Yes, God's will. God is sovereign that He is over all the deception, all of the fakery, all of the violence, all of the uproar, and guess what? All over 2020. All over the mass situation, all over the divided politics, all over black lives matter, blue lives matter, all lives matter, left of center, right of center, far right, far left, white supremacy, he's over it all. He is the Lord of glory. I'm glad some of you like that. (laughs) And friends, listen, our Lord can be trusted and none of the others should be. You, you owe allegiance to no one but him, friends. Don't let society pressure you into taking a tribe or a camp or a side. Not Christians. No, we pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ and his kingdom come. Now, that's not to say we're anti-American and we're anti-government. No, that's not to say that. But friends, our ultimate allegiance is to the Lord of glory. And from heaven, we eagerly await a Savior. And guess what? Yeah, you're citizen's here, but your citizenship is in heaven. And from there, we eagerly await a Savior. Now, that's not in the text. However, it is in the text by way of implication, isn't it? Look, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place, meaning... This is the plan of God. It must happen. It cannot not happen because it's God's plan. But the end is not yet. The end of what? The end of these tribulation days that God has appointed even up to 70 AD and beyond. Okay? The end is not yet. When you hear these things, when you see these false messiahs, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be afraid. Right? So when we hear of wars and rumors of wars and we see uh, uprisings of, of people claiming authority and damaging, we get anxious and we get panicked. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't be alarmed. Now, he's not speaking to us, but by implication, he's speaking to us too. When we hear of wars and rumors of wars and power struggles and and violent uprisings, don't be alarmed. Who's in control? Not man, ultimately. And praise God, not Satan either. Not the prince of darkness, but the prince of light. Friends, if you don't believe in a big, awesome, powerful, mighty God your God is way too small, and he is not worthy of your worship. But the God of the Bible, this God, Jesus Christ, the Lord of, the, of glory, can call all the shots. It's as if the bases are loaded, he's up to bat, and he points beyond the fence, and he's like, "Watch this. home run. right where he pointed, into the river. The idea here is that God is in control, and Jesus is calling all these events before they took place, and all these events did take place within the first century. And if, you, if you're rowdy enough to read all of Josephus, <laughs> go for it and learn the history of the first century verse 8, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning, the beginning of birth pains. Okay, now, now, a lot of uh, those who would be called premillennial, those who see this all as future would point to these things and say, this is a future reality. Okay, and that may be I'm not dogmatic about my interpretation of this. But these things, wars, rumors of wars, uh, nation rising up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes in various places, famines, these all happened in the first century. I mean, just think of Rome coming in and, and crushing the Jews and crushing the temple. And then Nero coming in and crushing the Christians and them fleeing all over the Mediterranean world. That was the, if you will, known world at the time. In fact, to where Paul talks about in his letters, uh, the gospel has gone out to the whole world. And you're like, wait a minute. It hasn't gone far east to China and Japan. It hasn't gone far west to the Americas and South America. How could you say that? Because to Paul, the world surrounded the Mediterranean. That was the world. And all over the Mediterranean world in the first century, these very things happened that Jesus spoke about. But yet Jesus says, when these things happen, it's not the end. It's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. They're the beginning of birth pains, which means something's about to be birthed. Now, I want to show you something here. <clears throat> when, when you go into the epistles, especially in Acts, Paul, the apostle, is going around to the Gentile churches, and he's collecting money for what? Does anyone remember? Someone remembers. Huh? I, I can't hear you because of the masks. That's okay. I'll, I'll tell you. <laughs> I appreciate the response. He is collecting money for the church at Jerusalem for the poor saints because of famine relief, because of wars, because of insurrection, because of uh, Christians experiencing being uh, kicked out of their own families for claiming Jesus as Messiah, they're poor and there's famine. And so Paul is collecting money from the Gentile churches that had so that they could then supply the famine relief that was happening in Jerusalem at the time that Paul was doing his missionary endeavors. The first one happens, I believe, in Acts 11 when he uh, goes from Antioch to deliver. And then the second one happens in uh, Acts chapter 21 when he enters Jerusalem a second time. And then after entering the temple, he creates a riot, and and then gets captured. So let's now go to 9 to 13. But be on your guard. So Jesus is saying, be on your guard. Look out. I want you to understand what's about to happen. Watch out. He's caring for them again. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. Didn't we just see that? The apostles in Acts 5 were beaten for proclaiming the name of Jesus. Did you know that in, well, here, I, I, I have uh, this here for you. Oh, I don't. It's in my notes. So in my notes, I have Acts 8.1, which says this, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so, what happened was, Stephen, the deacon, one of the seven deacons that the apostles chose to help with the the widows who were being neglected, he is confronted by the authorities of the day, the Sanhedrin, and he gives this slamming sermon in Acts chapter 7. And no one could defeat the spirit by which he spoke it's the Holy Spirit. And so, they are so angry at him that they literally stop their ears and they scream and they drag him, and they start to pound him with stones until he dies. What a terrible way to die, to get hit with rocks over and over until you die. But that's what they did. And after that event, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. All the Christians just, they, they, they flew. They, they went all over. Where? Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria and the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Paul in in, um, 2 Corinthians talks about being beaten many times you just, you read after Acts chapter 9, and the Apostle Paul is getting let down from a basket over here because he's being hunted. He's, he's being driven out of this city. He literally gets stoned in one city, left for dead, and he starts to move the rocks away, and he resurrects out of the rock pile. And then he goes right back to preaching and his missionary endeavors. And this is Paul's life. Right? And so this is what Jesus is saying. He's like, look, they're going to beat you in the synagogues. You are going to be delivered over to authoritative councils. We would think of them as courtrooms in our day. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. Why? To bear witness before them. Listen, apostles, Peter, James, John, Andrew. You are going to be hauled into court and here's my reason for having you hauled into court. You are to preach the gospel. You are to be a witness to me and to my work and my person and my resurrection, even though at the time this had not happened yet. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And and this is the great commission, isn't it? This is what Jesus said in Matthew 28, you go as you go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Now remember, there are some who see verse 10 as being way future because they're like, look, every, every nation has not received the gospel. But in the mind of the first century, did he mean the Mediterranean world? Or did he mean in the immediate, the Mediterranean world? And then in a future sense, every people group. I would go for number two option. And when they bring you to trial, verse 11, and deliver you over, do not be anxious. Again, there's Jesus caring for his sheep. Don't worry. Don't be alarmed. Don't be anxious. What would they be anxious about? Don't be anxious beforehand what you are to say. So when you're standing on trial and there is authoritative men in front of you who can execute you, don't be anxious. You be bold and said, don't worry. And you know what? Don't even worry about what you're going to say ahead of time. Don't prepare a sermon. Now, this doesn't mean, as some have wrongly uh, interpreted it, that means that pastors should not prepare sermons, and they should just come up, and whatever the Spirit brings to mind, they should say. That is terribly terribly wrong, and that's not what you should interpret that as. He is speaking specifically to the apostles and to Christians when they go before courts and trials, and the Holy Spirit will give them what to say. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, this happened. The the Jews were, even to claim Jesus, you were were to be kicked out of the synagogue. You were to be uh, disowned by your family. And when the great persecution came, you were hunted. You remember Paul was going to synagogue after synagogue, not only beating individuals, but hauling them into court, hunting Christians. And so you imagine, you know, the FBI coming in, breaking down your door and being like, where are they at? And, and, and so you're so afraid that you give up your father or your mother. Or the children are like, they're, they're over there. They're in this house. They're in. And so this is what's happening in the first century. Families were afraid or worse they hated their family members for for choosing Jesus because they so hated Jesus that hatred of Jesus transferred to them and so they're willing to give up their family members because they want them to be put on trial. And when you read about Nero's reign from 54 to 68 especially towards the end there was terrible persecution for Christians. This was a time you did not want to be a Christian. And so Jesus is here warning that this is coming. He sees it in his mind's eye and he's warning the apostles. And verse 13, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. The hatred of me will transfer to you. But, but, listen guys, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now listen, what Jesus is not saying here is that you can lose your salvation. No, that's not what he's saying. Here's what he is saying. Those who are truly born again, those who truly are regenerate, will endure to the end. This is what the theologians call the perseverance of the saints. You will persevere even through this kind of being hunted and betrayed and this kind of hatred. The true, regenerate, born-again Christian will not disown and leave the faith. They would rather die for the name of Jesus and for the sake of Jesus than denounce Jesus. Now, you might say, I don't know what would happen if I was in that situation. But remember the context. The Holy Spirit will give you what to say. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit will empower you to endure and to suffer whatever you would need to suffer if you were ever in this situation. And you remember, I I think of, and I'm running out of time, but I, I think of Stephen in Acts 7. The Holy Spirit came upon him and he was being mobbed literally a giant mob one person and he looks up by the power of the holy spirit and he sees the heavens open and he sees the risen christ standing there and he says an amazing thing forgive them what as they're throwing stones at him trying to kill him he's asking that god would forgive them friends many of you can't even forgive little offenses let alone a mob attacking you with stones, seeking to kill you, and then succeeding. Friends, here's my exhortation. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm not trying to pound you. If God can do it to Stephen, you have the same Holy Spirit that Stephen had. He is not any less involved in your life than he is in Stephen's life. Now, at that moment in time, Stephen needed an extra, very extra Measure of the Holy Spirit. But listen, if you ask the Holy Spirit to help you to forgive, He will help you. If you don't think He can, again, your God is way too small and not worthy of your worship. Close parenthesis there. So the endurance will be by the power of the Holy Spirit, even in the face of great opposition and persecution. Let's move on to the last paragraph, and we got about seven minutes to go. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, little parenthesis by Mark there, Let then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now. And, never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Now, there's a lot going on here. And so I'm going to make it really quick and really simple. Okay? I do believe that this is referring to the Romans coming into the temple and into Jerusalem in 70 AD under Titus, the military commander, and literally wiped out the temple and destroyed anyone in his path. And literally not one stone was left on another. Those giant 37 by, what do we say, 12 and 18 foot stones, all of them removed. The whole temple dismantled and burned. And anyone that stood in Rome's way were crushed. Now, what happened up until 70? Well, there was all these wars. There was all these insurrectionists. There were all these rebels claiming to be the Messiah, Claiming to be the deliverer, claiming to be the one who, if followed, we can defeat Rome. Follow me, I am the Messiah. This is who they thought Jesus was. They thought he was this military Messiah. Even the disciples did, because you remember after the resurrection, at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? At this time, are you gonna smash the Romans? No, no, not at this time. The gospel must be preached. To all the nations first. The end is not yet. And you remember Peter? He is patient, not wanting any to perish. Or is that, is that Timothy, or Timothy, First Timothy? Help me, brother. Was that Peter or, or Timothy? Patient, not wanting any to perish. He doesn't know. All right, we're stuck. Some of you, one of you Bible experts, call it out. Peter, Peter thank you. It's the danger of going off your notes your mind forgets the reference. So what is the, def- uh, the, the abomination of desolation? Well, abomination means this is abominable, and then desolation means deserting. This comes from the book of Daniel. Okay, this is where Jesus is drawing this idea, and it actually comes from Daniel eleven thirty-one. Here it is forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and forces and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. The abomination that makes desolate. Now this was first fulfilled in 168 BC when Antiochus Epiphanes set up a pagan altar and sacrificed a pig in the most holy place. So you can imagine this this leader going in, destroying the leadership, setting up a pagan altar, and then sacrificing a pig, which was an ultimate abomination. The pig was an unclean animal. The Jews did not eat pigs. They were forbidden from farming them and even coming near them. And then after that, he sets up an altar to Zeus in the temple. This is in 167, 168 AD. So this is what Daniel is specifically talking about, Antiochus Epiphanes. But there was another fulfillment Often this happens with prophecy. You have uh, an immediate fulfillment or a near fulfillment, and then there's also a later fulfillment. This happens all the time. You remember when, when the Jews left Egypt. It was, out of Egypt, I called my son. And then later, Matthew says, this was a prophecy about Jesus. Which is it? Both. This often happens. Okay? And so it's not strange that this would have a double fulfillment or even a triple fulfillment. But what I think is being talked about here is that the Roman legions would come into Jerusalem. And do you remember the scene of America first making it to the moon? Do you remember the flag that was planted? And it's like, we're claiming the moon for America. This is our moon. (laughs) Well, Well, in the same way, military commanders would carry their country or their army's flags, and they would come in and say, ours. This is what happened with Rome. Rome comes into the temple and says this is now ours an abomination which caused desolation literally the temple is no more listen guys it was never rebuilt 70 AD Jesus prophecy was fulfilled it never got rebuilt now there's a muslim structure there the dome of the rock and then you have one wall that is still there called the wailing wall and you can go visit it and see people praying there but It was not a part of the temple. It was just a foundational wall. So Jesus was right. Not one stone would be left on another. But there's still one wall from the ancient temple of Herod the Great still there. And it's now the Wailing Wall. And people, Jews, those who travel there, they they put prayer requests on little papers and they stick them in the mortar in the wall. The Wailing Wall. It's the only wall that's left from this temple. And so Rome comes in and plants their flag down. Abomination, ours. We are now ruling. And you remember uh, the declaration, Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord. And the Christians were forced to choose between the one. And so in those days, if you were to not say Caesar is Lord, you were executed. And so you have this giving up of family members out of fear. It It was a terrible time to be alive. And so Jesus is here prophesying this. He sees it prophetically, and he warns his disciples. And then Mark, by way of Peter, warns us. Let the reader understand. And then he gives a warning. He says, listen, I care about you. When you see these signs, you need to run. Run. Look what he says. Let those who are in Judea flee. Run. Run to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, because there was outside steps, and maybe you're like, I need to get a bottle of water. I need to get my coat. I need to get... No, you just run. You take off to take anything out, and let not the one who is in the field turn back to take his cloak. Well, the mountains get cold. I need my coat. No, don't. You'll die. Just run. Run when you see this happening, and alas. last For women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Why? Because you can't run fast when you're pregnant. We never see at track meets pregnant women competing, do we? (laughs) We never see the Olympics. So you got a bunch of nursing mothers holding their infant lining up on the blocks. (laughs) They can't run fast. And so, woe to them. It's going to be bad. If you're pregnant, it's going to go bad for you because they're going to catch you. And then he says this. Pray that it may not happen in winter. Why? Because the way would be difficult and it would be cold and there would be swelling streams and it would make the journey hard and you would not be able to go as quickly. And so Jesus, though he can see this, he doesn't know the exact time it will take place because he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, Philippians 2. And so the Holy Spirit can show him and does show him often things that will come, but he didn't show him the exact time and date of when it would come, he, but he did call it rightly, this did happen, 19, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God has created until now, and will never be, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, and, and what he means by that is not saved in the salvation heaven hell sense, but saved as in a physical sense, you would be destroyed if God did not make this happen quickly, Rome was that brutal and that aggressive. But for the sake of the elect, again, God caring for his own. The elect in the Old Testament was Israel. The elect in the New Testament are those, according to Ephesians 1, whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless in his sight. So for the sake of God's people, others are even spared. For the sake of the elect, whom he chose he shortened the days. Again, God's mercy even in the midst of great judgment. And remember, we talked about Jesus cursing the fig tree, coming into the temple, uprooting it, saying that you scribes are devouring the ones you're supposed to be caring for. This whole thing is getting torn down. And here he is describing what it will be like, and it will be great and terrible. And if anyone says to you, one more warning, one more care, and if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Look, He's the one who will save us. Here's the Messiah. Or look, there He is. Do not believe it. For false messiahs or Christ, false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray. If possible, if it was possible, the elect. They will Be so compelling and so authoritative and maybe even speaking by evil spirits that give them power that even the elect would be deceived if it were possible but it's not possible but be on guard Peter James John Andrew I told you all these things beforehand now what do we do with this We need to see that there was something better on the horizon than the temple. The temple was the place where you went to meet with God. His localized presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And so a better presence, a more holier place had arisen. What am I talking about? Well, in John... I'm sorry. Uh, It shouldn't be 1822. Yeah, it is. So the Jews said to him, this is after the clearing of the temple by Jesus in the book of John. They said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Doing what things? Literally overturning the tables, overturning the money changers, releasing the animals, making a whip and driving people out. Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. Herod's been working on this thing for 46 years. And you will raise it up in three days? But John tells us in verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so what's the authority? Jesus says, and he probably was like, destroy this temple. Destroy it. And in three days, I'll raise it up. He was speaking of himself as the temple. And he is the temple. He is the place where God's presence dwelt. Hebrews 1 tells us he's the exact representation of his being. John 1 tells us about Jesus that nothing was made without him. Colossians 1 says that he is the one who made all things and for whom all things were made. He is the Lord. And so he says, I am the temple. Now here's the application, friends. Where do you go to meet with God? We don't go to a place anymore. Didn't Jesus say this to the woman at the well in John 4? Listen, there's coming a time when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. No, you will come to a person to meet with God, not to a place. No geography. Can you find God more present than another? Now, I get the idea that we think church buildings are more holy and God's presence lives in them in a weird way than he does outside of a church building. But friends, it's just not true. God is omnipresent, meaning all present. But in addition, since the temple is destroyed, God's presence doesn't dwell locally in buildings anymore. But you know where he does dwell, actually? Look at this. In Ephesians 2.20 to 22, Paul tells the Ephesian church this, that built on the foundation of the apostles, prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, you remember that from a few weeks ago, the cornerstone or the capstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Friends, this means that you and I in this context being built together. Peter calls us living stones. The people are the place where God's presence dwells now. If you're a Christian, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God. And we each, with the Holy Spirit being built, if you will, on top of each other, make a replica of the Old Testament temple, but not buildings. Friends, that means when you leave here tonight, you leave with the presence of God. That means when you wake up in the middle of the night tonight, and you're anxious, and you're panicking, and you can't go back to sleep, guess who's there? God. He can't be nearer to you. When you get up in the morning, and you go to work, who is with you? God. When you have that argument with your boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, kids, neighbor, coworker, who is right there with you? God. This one's going to hurt. Who is there when you're practicing the darkness? Who sees what you see on your screens? Who is fully present to what you click on your smartphone? He is there, friends. Let us remember that. It is a great deterrent for those who believe to not sin against the living God. And so, here's how we're going to end this. We're done. But let us remember that Jesus is the greater temple and He Himself let Himself be destroyed for our sake. His body broken so that us, His children, did not have to be broken. His if you will, temple was torn down so that our temple did not have to be forever torn down. And now, amazingly, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit whom we have from God. It's amazing that you have this location in Jerusalem and all its splendor and glory where God's presence dwells, and it gets crushed by God Himself through the Romans, yes, but by God Himself, and then the presence transfers to us. Friends, the Holy Spirit makes possible all the commands and demands of Scripture. Without Him, we can do, say it, nothing. But friends, with Him, we can. We can. And so what we're going to do is we're going to sing a song of celebrating the gospel and these realities that we just spoke of. And we're going to take communion together as one church. And remember that we as living stones built upon the foundation of the apostles, prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, we now are living stones being built into the place where God dwells. And so let's celebrate the temple of Jesus being crushed for us as a substitute.